Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 364th episode of Awards Chatter. Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is an American filmmaker who has been making films for 57 years and is, in the minds of many, the greatest documentary filmmaker, living or dead. The New Yorker said he possesses, quote, the most illustrious career of any documentarian in the history of cinema, close quote. The Washington Post called him, quote, the dean of documentary filmmaking, close quote. The San Francisco Examiner labeled him, quote, a national treasure, close quote. And the New York Times described him as, quote, one of America's greatest chroniclers in any medium, close quote. And, quote, not just one of the greatest documentary filmmakers working today, but one of the greatest directors, close quote. Since winning three Emmys in two years a half century ago, he has been recognized with a host of other major honors. In 1990, with the International Documentary Association's Career Achievement Award, in 1991, with the Peabody Award, in 2006, with the George Polk Career Award and the American Society of Cinematographers Distinguished Achievement Award, in 2014, with the Venice Film Festival's Golden Lion for Lifetime Achievement, and in 2016, with an honorary Oscar for, quote, illuminating lives in the context of social, cultural, and government institutions, close quote. His films, among them 1967's Titty Cut Follies, 1968's High School, 1969's Law and Order, 1970's Hospital, 1975's Welfare, 1986's Death, 1987's Blind, 1989's Near Death, 1997's Public Housing, 2010's Boxing Gym, 2013's At Berkeley, 2015's In Jackson Heights, and 2017's Ex Libris, The New York Public Library, have been watched and studied by generations. And now, as he nears his 91st birthday, his 45th film, the four-and-a-half-hour study City Hall, which premiered at September's Venice Film Festival and is now available for streaming online, is garnering some of the best reviews of any he has ever made. Indeed, as 2020 winds to a close, Richard Brody of The New Yorker ranks it as the year's 10th best movie. Both of the co-chief film critics of The New York Times, Manola Dargis and A.O. Scott, have it at number two on their lists, and the critics of Cahiers de Cinema magazine collectively place it at number one. All of which made this as great a time as any to record an episode of the podcast 
with the legendary Frederick Wiseman. Over the course of our conversation, me from Los Angeles and he from Paris, we discussed why a Yale Law School graduate turned Boston University law professor with a young family walked away from a life of stability to enter the world of documentary filmmaking before almost any documentaries were receiving financing or distribution, why he came to resent the labels that were slapped on the sort of documentaries that he and his contemporaries were making, like Cinema Verite, Direct Cinema, and Fly on the Wall Cinema, why he spurned offers to direct narrative films, including the original Rocky, in favor of spending months on the road each year quietly documenting the inner workings of American institutions, what has kept him doing that for so long, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you so much for joining us, Mr. Wiseman. Great to have you, honor to have you on the podcast. And on, on this podcast, we always begin with just a few basics for our listeners. If you can uh, just share where you were born and raised and what your folks did for a living. I was born and raised in Boston, Massachusetts. My father was a lawyer and my mother uh, was with an administrator at the psychiatric department at the Boston uh, Children's Hospital. And as a kid, you know, I've I've read as much as I, I could about your life to prep for this. And it's I, I, I've learned a lot about you. But one thing I didn't find was, you know, pre going off to law school, uh, uh, pre going off to Williams for, for college, even before that. Did you have any sense of what you wanted to do as an adult? You know, when you grew up, was there any uh, no. It doesn't no, not at all? No, I was a drifter. <laughs> And so one thing, I, I guess, just to set the scene a bit, though, you've said that throughout your early years, right through college and law school, where I guess there were quotas, you as a Jewish person did encounter quite a bit of anti-Semitism, right? I did indeed. And and how would you do you think that shaped your character at all in any way? Well, you know, it, it's I, I'm sure it did. I, I don't know that I'm the. A good judge as to how, but I was very aware of anti-Semitism from the time I was a little boy. Uh, in part because we couldn't, there were some neighborhoods in Boston Jews couldn't live in there, either rent or buy houses, rent apartments or buy houses. And I was born in 1930, and from the time I was very young, my parents would talk a lot about what was going on in Europe, and I was very aware of Hitler. And I remember as a kid of six or seven hearing 
Hitler's speeches on the radio uh, and my father and mother explaining to me what he was about. And I also remember my father listened with great impatience and horror to the weekly ser- uh, sermons of a Catholic priest called Father Coughlin, who uh, delivered his anti-Semitic diatribes every Sunday. And my parents, you know, talked a lot about a- anti-Semitism in, 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 in Boston. My father was appointed a judge in the Boston Municipal Court in 1930, and it was announced. And then Henry Cabot Lodge Sr., who was the Republican political boss of Massachusetts, had the nomination withdrawn because he didn't want a Jew on the Boston Municipal Court. So I was very aware of that. And of course, when I went to college, I mean, then there was the war. uh, And then when I went to college in 1947, the whole social life of Williams, where I went to college, was organized around the fraternity system. And uh, Jews weren't uh, admitted to the fraternity. So I was very, you know, I was very aware of that and very hurt by that. And so obviously... You know, amidst all of this, you were you must have been an excellent student to go to Williams and then Yale Law School. I guess a, a question based on information that I, I, you know, I guess we have in hindsight, you you did not particularly enjoy, it sounds like, law school or anything to do with the law after law school. So why did you go to law school in the first place? Well, I went to law school for several reasons. I didn't know what else to do. I also wanted to avoid going to Korea. And you could, if you were, went to, it was very unfair, but if you went to graduate school, you could defer your military service. So uh, my time at law school almost completely coincided with the Korean War. I think I was in law school from 51 to 54, but in 50, 51, I was in college. And then and by the time I, I finished law school, the Korean War was over. And I, I was quite happy to have missed it. And so after graduating from law school, now it, it was sort of uh, push come to shove time. You got to figure out what what you're going to do with your life. And I actually I guess you were able to postpone that uh, somewhat for a couple more years because you wind up in Paris. Now, I think you were already you had met your wife in law school, but you hadn't yet had children. So what was that time? It sounds like that time in Paris was important for you and the beginning of you even just experimenting with with filmmaking, right? Right. Well, when I got out of law school, I went in the army and I was in the army for 21 months. And then the usual term was 24 months, but you could get out early if you went back to school. So I canvassed the world for a program uh, and and the faculty of law at the Sorbonne started in November. And I think I was discharged in the army uh, I got out of the army on the 25th of October or 20th of October. <laughs> we took a boat to France and, you know, ran the GI Bill for 20, you know, for almost two years in Paris. Then I came back and then, you know, as part of my drift, I, I took a job teaching law at Boston University Law School and uh, didn't like that either. And, Were you also teaching at some point at Brandeis University, which is my alma mater? No, I had a fellowship. That was based in Brandeis, but I never taught there. Okay, so so after that period of a couple, of, so just to keep listeners uh, help them keep track, so graduate from Williams in fifty one, graduate from Yale Law in fifty four, 
21 months in the army, then Paris 56 to 58. Now you're back and having to, uh, sort of earn a living and earn a living. Yeah. And, uh, and so, and we should note that, you know, I think around this time, certainly not long after being back in the States, you've got now two kids. So you're a young husband, father of two kids, not particularly thrilled with your career path. So how does this lead you to Shirley Clark and the first film project with which you were involved, which some people consider the first black exploitation film. But I mean, this is, it just seems like kind of, how does one get into film producing from, from Boston in the early sixties? Because I was a daydreamer uh, and I didn't like what I was doing. The one son was born in 61 and one, the other was born in 65, but I, I intensely disliked what I was doing. I was always interested in the movies when I lived in Paris, I used to go to the movies, you know, a lot, almost every day. And it was just a transition period from everybody who didn't know what they wanted to do was was for it, the beginning of the 50s. Everybody was going to write a novel. Everybody was Fitzgerald or Hemingway. And then toward the beginning of the 60s was the transition to everybody being a filmmaker, uh, even though there were not as yet film schools in every corner. I, I gave up the idea of, uh, of you know, that I was going to be a novelist and uh, exchanged it for the fantasy that I was going to be a filmmaker. And uh, I read uh, the novel of The Cool World and thought it would make a very good movie. And it was also at a time when there had black life was not much of a subject in, uh, in movies. And I, since I had no experience directing a movie, I didn't think I could direct it myself. And so uh, I had seen The Connection, which is a movie that Shirley had made around that same time, which I liked a lot. I thought it was a great movie. So I called her up and said that I had acquired the rights to The Cool World. Was she, interest, uh, was she interested in directing a movie? So we met, and she was. And, and I was the producer, and she was the director. And The Cool World is Shirley's film. It's not my film. But the experience of producing The Cool World completely demystified the process of filmmaking for me. So I, you know, I basically thought that I, you know, having observed it in filmmaking and action that I could do it. And I said to myself afterward, I would never, I didn't want to be a producer. If I produced, if I was involved in movies after that, I would only be my own that I was directing. And so the, the cool world came out in 63. You didn't, uh, your first film, Teddy Cut Follies, didn't screen until 67. I wonder if you can just talk about what was going on around that time technologically in films, because there were there were some innovations and improvements that were that were happening that without which I don't I don't know that someone like you or or the people that you're often lumped with in in in, uh, you know, discussions of that era would have been able to do what you did with with kind of advancing the the documentary form but that that what what happened technologically that opened the doors for you somebody figured out how the camera and the tape recorder could run at the same speed without being connected by a cable so you could run the sound you could run the camera 24 frames a second or 25 frames a second and the camera and the tape recorder didn't have to be connected by a cable. So it gave, it gave the filmmakers enormous mobility. Uh, you could run around, move around, and you weren't 
constrained by a cable it was you know five or six feet long or maybe even longer and you didn't have to worry that if you made an abrupt movement the cable was going to be pulled out of the camera or out of the tape recorder now at that time before you made your own first documentary what sorts of documentaries were you aware of or able to consume yourself because i don't know how many of them were getting much of a release or uh, I'd just be curious to know how familiar you were with the documentary form. Well, I, I'd seen a few. I saw one that I really liked a lot. It was called Mooney versus Fowl, or sometimes it was called, uh, I think, high school. But it was about two high school football teams getting ready for a championship game in Miami. And it was shot with the new technology uh, and I, I thought that was a very good film. And so that, and, I, and I'd seen some other films, but that one particularly stuck with me. And uh, it, it just made me aware of the possibilities. So when I had, had the idea of, of uh, doing a, a film about the Bridgewater State Prison to the Criminally Insane, I, I was aware of the technology that would make a film on that subject possible. And can you... You know, I know it's a story you've told before, but can you explain, because it kind of connects the dots, you're still teaching law and you're going, this is basically what led you for the first time to Bridgewater. But so I guess the story of how you came to the uh, awareness of Bridgewater, but also then how you break the news to your young wife uh, and mother of your two kids that, hey, I want to spend some time and money away from what I do for a living to try to make a film about this, you know, hospital for the criminally insane. I wonder how that went over at home. Well, yeah, my wife was, has always been very supportive of what I wanted to do. It was, it was simply not a problem. She knew that I was unhappy with what I was doing and she, uh, and she shared my enthusiasm for, uh, trying to make movies. And, uh, I mean, it was just something I felt compelled to do. I mean, everybody told me I was nuts. But, I mean, I'm sure that, that rather than thwarting me, that pushed me on just to prove them that they were wrong, prove they were wrong. I persevered. First, before I guess, I don't know what came first. You sort of thinking specifically that Bridgewater State Hospital for the Criminally Insane might make a interesting movie or something that I want to quote back to you, which I... I read that you'd said, which was, quote, I wanted to see whether I could make dramatic movies based on sequences that were accumulated with no particular thesis or point of view in mind, that the thesis and the point of view would emerge from the editing, close quote. So where do you think you even got the idea of making a film that way, which was certainly not and and remains not commonplace? I think I realized the possibilities that were a consequence of the technological innovations we were talking about. So I think it came out of that, my awareness of, of, of uh, what you could, new ways you could make a documentary movie, and my seeing Mooney versus Fowl. And, and I was always, you know, I, I always had the view that in ordinary experience, there was a you know, a lot of funny things happen, a lot of dramatic things happen, and a lot of sad and tragic things happen. And the technology made it possible to re register that or to record that. Uh, and on the basis of, of the sequences filmed, I thought one might be able to construct a 
dramatic narrative. And where, you know, since you were obviously going to have to invest your time and money in in making such a film, where did you at that point think it would go? Because there wasn't, you know, streaming services, there wasn't cable, there were uh, a few broadcast networks and they weren't, they hadn't shown such films really. So what, where were these going to go and where was your investment going to go? That was a practical question that I was naive enough not to ask myself. <laughs> uh, because I, I was more completely taken with the idea of making the movie. And I figured if I made, I mean, I, I, mean, I knew it was possible, remotely possible to get some distribution. Uh, but I, I really, that wasn't uppermost in my mind, nor was the idea of an audience in my mind at all. I just wanted to make movies. And I thought this was a good subject. Now, just to come back for a second, how did Bridgewater first cross your radar? Well, I was one of the courses I taught at Boston University Law School was legal medicine. And uh, a lot of the students at BU Law School at the time, when they graduated, went on to become uh, district attorneys or U.S. attorneys, or they represented people who were in some way involved with the law. So I... Given my own experience in law school, I was bored out of my mind. I thought it would be more interesting for the students to see some of the places that constituted and made up uh, the criminal justice system. So I took them to trials, uh, and I took them to parole board hearings. I took them to a mental hospital. And one of the places I took them to, I took them to regular prisons. And one of the places I took them to was the Bridgewater Prison for the Criminally Insane because I was trying to introduce a little reality to the reading of appellate court decisions, which by and large were poorly written. And, you know, at least I thought they were poorly written and difficult, not very interesting to read as a result. So I I tried to make uh, the study of criminal law and legal medicine more interesting by giving it a little so-called flesh and blood. Um, So it was a result of that. Bridgewater was one of many places that I took them on field trips to. I think over the years, I probably had been there four or five times. And I vividly remember my first trip there because I was so horrified. I couldn't imagine that people could be kept in the conditions that I saw there. And obviously, you know, for, again, just to contextualize this a little bit, this is before anyone has seen or probably read One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or anything that would suggest what life... Yeah, it was before One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah, so people probably had no real concept of what was going on inside these institutions whatsoever. And so when you go to them at a certain point and say, hey, I'd like to make a documentary about this, why would they have agreed to cooperate with you knowing what was going on in there? Well, because... I mean, that's a question I've asked myself, but fortunately, I've always, with a couple of exceptions, I've always been able to get permission. Why people give me permission, I don't know. I have to ask them. But also, I think that the, the superintendent at Bridgewater, having been the superintendent at that point for nine years, and having spent his career in the so called criminal justice system, didn't see it the same way that an outsider like me saw it. He wasn't horrified 
I mean, I mean, he knew the conditions there were bad, but he didn't have the same kind of naive, my oh my God, reaction that I did, or that I think anybody would who was walking to a place like that for the first time. So he saw it. Uh, he saw a film as a way of getting the state legislature off their ass and uh, appropriating more money. I mean, he knew it. He knew he didn't have money for the kind of programs that he wanted to offer or to implement. And he thought a movie might stimulate the state legislature to uh, appropriate more money so that they could get more professionally trained staff and and, uh, offer more programs that had some chance of helping the inmates. From his point of view, the movie was uh, something that would just help him in his goal of running a better institution. So that's what he thought would happen. Let's let's note what actually did happen after you spend, I believe, 29 days capturing 80 hours of footage there. You now submit your film, I guess, to the New York Film Festival, gets in there, premieres in ni- at the 1967 festival where it's very well received. And then essentially this movie winds up in the courts for decades, doesn't really get much of an audience because of that. What happened and do you think that the attention that came about because of this legal fight was ultimately good or bad i you know not to be reductive but just for your own career did that did this whole brouhaha which i'm going to ask you to to share what happened did that put you on more people's radar and make it easier to get financing and things for films afterwards or or well, was I, it just well, yeah it was outside of uh, a small group of politicians in Massachusetts, Titty Cut Folly was very well received, both as a film and for what it uh, showed about the prison. And I made high school three months after, or four months after the Titty Cut Follies trial was over. From my point of view, the banning of Titty Cut Follies was a consequence of cowardice and betrayal. The person, I, when I first asked permission to make the movie, I had the support of the superintendent of the prison, but the commit, but he had to get the approval of the commissioner of correction. Commissioner of correction turned me down. When the commissioner of correction turned me down, I went to see a man by me, Elliot Richardson, who at that point was the lieutenant governor of Massachusetts, to whom the commissioner of correction reported. I explained what I wanted to do to Richardson. He thought it was a great idea. In my presence, he called the commissioner of correction and said. You know, basically, Commissioner, give Wiseman permission. So a week or two later, I got a letter giving me permission. And then I, I also got a letter from the Attorney General giving me permission. So with that, armed with that, and thinking that I had touched all the appropriate bases and had the support of the people responsible, I made the film. When the film was finished, I showed it to Richardson and to the superintendent, and they loved it. And Richardson mm-hmm. saw all the jokes. He thought, you know, he thought it was a good film. He congratulated me. And then, in connection with the showing uh, at the New York Film Festival, some reviews began to appear. And there was a review, I think, in Time Magazine, and a woman subscribed to Time Magazine who lived in, I forgot, in Minnesota, I think, wrote a letter to the governor of Massachusetts, whose name is John Volpe, 
saying they were shocked and horrified that he, as governor, allowed me to make a movie that showed men naked in their cells. And that was the first that Volpe had heard of the movie. And then the movie started to get attention, and Volpe got in touch with Richardson. And Richardson and Volpe were exactly friendly. I think they were political rivals. And Richardson thought his political career was going to be jeopardized. I heard, I know this because subsequently one of the people attended a meeting told me this a year or two later. Richardson called a meeting of his advisors, his political advisors, and his senior staff. Richardson, at this point, which is a year later, was no longer lieutenant governor. He was the attorney general of Massachusetts. And he discussed with his staff whether he should support the film or move against it. And they decided that for his political career, because he was ambitious, he wanted to be governor, he would have to move to protect himself. He would have to move it against the film. He then got, went in and got a temporary restraining order preventing the film from being shown. And that resulted in a 19-day trial. And the allegations against the film were that I had breached an oral contract giving the state the right of editorial control and that the film was an invasion of privacy of the inmate who does a kind of dance who's naked in his cell. And you uh, you say that you never entered into well, such an oral agreement because how? why would you, right? Why would I? That's exactly right. And there was no documentation of that whatsoever. Uh, right. Uh, and I mean, I... I may be mad, but I would never cede editorial control of the film to uh, this commissioner of correction, the, the attorney general, and the, and the head of the prison. And and so this resulted in basically the first documented instance of a film being banned in America uh, for reasons other than obscenity, immorality, or national security, right? So for decades, most people were not able to see this film until the 90s when I guess that original judge died and people were saying, you know, anyone had, nobody had really made a claim against the, none of the inmates or their families had really made a claim against the film, right? Right. There was an intermediate stage where I think around 1973 or four, I was allowed to show the film to select audiences uh, as long as I signed an affidavit that everybody that attended the screening was within the class of people allowed to see the film. And the class of people, as defined by the Massachusetts Supreme Court, allowed to see the film were doctors, lawyers, judges, legislators, and people interested in custodial care and students in these and related fields. It's amazing that I still remember that. Yeah, that is. is. So that if a professor at some school wanted to show the film, and he signed an affidavit that the audience consisted of the appropriate class. I could then rely on that affidavit and show the film. But what it meant was that the film couldn't be shown in theaters or on television. But for the first seven years, it couldn't be shown anywhere. So I guess because of the New York Film Festival launch and the publicity around this and and the fact that, as you say, you were pretty quickly on to other films like High School and Law and Order and others that I'm going to ask you about shortly. I guess you were very quickly lumped in with these other 
documentary filmmakers who were starting out around the same time, Robert Drew, D.A. Pennebaker, the Maisels, others, and the way that you guys were often described and to this day, I think, are are often described as, as cinema verite filmmakers or direct cinema filmmakers or fly on the wall uh, filmmakers, which I understand you hate. What do you make of being lumped with those other guys? And also, what do you make of those? Why is it that those terms bother you? Well, I mean, I, I mean, th- that's something that people write about films do is, is you create schools. I, I don't think it's something that filmmakers do. I mean, I, I think my films are, are different uh, from the Maisels or Drew and Leacock and Penny Baker is their films are often different from each other. And I never liked the term cinema verite because I thought it was, you know, I, just a pompous French term that had no... <laughs> and I certainly didn't think my films were the truth. I think they were my version of the subject that I was making a movie about. But the truth, my God, that's, you know, I, it's much too pretentious. Uh, <laughs> and observational cinema was a much too passive form of expression. It's suggests you set up, set up a camera in a corner and just let events happen, when in fact these movies are made up of tens of thousands of choices. Choice of subject matter, what to shoot, what not to shoot, uh, how you shoot it, when you stop, how you edit it, how you const- construct a, a narrative out of it. I mean, all of those involve thousands of subjective choices. So, uh, and, and so the passivity of observational cinema didn't mean much to me. And fly on the wall, I, I thought was insulting because as far as I know, uh, and I'm, I don't know many flies, but uh, <laughs> uh, as far as I know, flies aren't conscious. And I, right. <laughs> I like to think I'm at least 2% conscious, uh, uh, which allows me to make the choices I have to make in order to f- find a movie out of the material I have. So, uh, and I, you know, I like the word movie. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, you know, and I, and I do think, uh, whether or not anybody agrees with me, that I make dramatic narrative movies based on unstaged events. Interesting. Well, so, and I, I guess furthermore, if, if people were looking to kind of, uh, for adjectives that describe your films, it seems like you made a concerted decision, correct me if I'm wrong, but during or after Titty Cut that you're going to, with your films, focus on American institutions. So I guess that begs the question, why limit things to, for the very most part, there are a few exceptions, why limit things to America and why institutions? Even if you could just explain what you understand that that word to mean, why was that? Yeah. An institution is really just an excuse to see how people behave in certain well-circumscribed uh, uh, circumstances. A welfare office, well, whatever goes on in the office is fit for inclusion in the film. Uh, so it's either a, either has a, it's either whatever happens in a building or in a, a circumscribed geographical area like Belfast, Maine, or Aspen, Colorado, or Monrovia, Indiana or a juvenile court, or a high school, or whatever. But it, it, it's an opportunity to have a look at human behavior and to see how people respond to certain normative rules 
which are exist either because they're legislative or they just happen to be the rules of the place, uh, which uh, describe what behavior is acceptable or not behave or not acceptable. And so, uh, and uh, in making films about institutions, it seemed to me that I would have a access to a wider variety of behavior than I would if I just stuck with an individual. I mean, there's nothing wrong with making films about individuals. A lot of people have made very good films about them, uh, but that's just not what I like to do. And I'm, I'm casting a wider net when there's a possibility of filming a whole bunch of people. And it seems like you had greater faith maybe than other contemporaries that regular people can be very interesting. I mean, a lot of those other films from that same early period primary, you're following a presidential candidate, you know, the Maisels are following Joseph E. Levine or different people like that. You, you were looking at not famous people, but you were committed to everyday people. Yeah. My, my subject is ordinary experience uh, on the assumption that it's just as much drama and comedy and tragedy and ordinary experience as there is in, in uh, great literature. You just have to be lucky enough to be present and be able mm-hmm. to shoot it when it occurs. Mm-hmm. So what I hope we can do is if I, I wonder if I can prompt you about a few of the great docs that you made along the way and just use them as ways into different questions about how you do what you do. And, you know, let's maybe start with the one that came right after Titty Cut, which is high school. This was uh, shot in Philadelphia, Northeast High School, a, a white middle class school. It's your shortest film, I believe, of all 75 minutes. And I want to use this to talk about something that you really insist upon, which I still have a hard time wrapping my own head around, which is that you really believe that the presence of a camera does not change the way people behave when even when they know they might be filmed. And I guess this is certainly a a film that would seem to support that, because as one of the New York Times pieces about it said, quote, the Wiseman, this is, this is, quote, the Wiseman documentary in which more men and women in authority behave more dreadfully than in any other, close quote. So, but how can it be? People, I know if there's a camera around, you, do you think that it just, people cannot suppress their nature? Well, I mean, don't forget, I am making movies about people at work. I'm, I'm not interviewing them. I'm not asking them to do anything. Uh, and... You know, and I know I've said this before a lot, but I mean, I don't think people have the capacity. Most people aren't good enough actors to become somebody else. <laughs> Not everybody's Meryl Streep. Right. Uh, uh, and it's very evident, at least to me. I mean, whether you're a filmmaker or a used car salesman or a doctor or a lawyer or, or running a podcast in L.A., in order to survive, anybody in order to survive has to have a decent bullshit meter because otherwise <laughs> you'd be conned out of your mind on a, you know, on a daily or hourly basis. Uh, right. Because just to sift through the experience of the world, you have to have some awareness. And I think when people, I think it's very, at least it's very evident when people are acting in ways that they're not comfortable with. You know, I like to think I'm aware of it. And also, the other thing is, me and all the other people who use this kind of technique have recorded such diversity of behavior that it 
if you think if people were concerned about being filmed, they would be pushed to sort of a narrow center of uncontroversial and bland behavior. It's not the case. I mean, and I, I think another aspect of it is that we all think what we do is okay. So we don't, we don't necessarily see ourselves the way somebody else sees us. So, I mean, like the most extreme example of that is the film I did on the Kansas City Police in 1968. Well, there's a scene in that where a policeman strangles a woman who's accused of prostitution. Yes. And, and his hand is around her neck, and you see her, and you see her gasping for breath, and he lets her go after about 30 seconds. And she says to the, one of the other cops who's holding her, her arms, she says, he, referring to the cop who was strangling her, he was trying to strangle me. And the other cop says, oh, no, he wasn't. You're just imagining it. And here we are. We're looking at it. Now, the cop that was doing the strangling, obviously, I mean, he knew I, I, I'd been sitting in the vice squad car with him for three hours before we went to the hotel. He knew that I was making a movie, uh, you know, and I, I was with him the whole time. He didn't think there was anything wrong was strangling a woman who was accused of prostitution because she'd knocked one of his buddies, an undercover cop, down the stairs when he'd arrested her. So he was just, I mean, I don't think he would have killed her if we hadn't been there. He was just trying, he was shaping her up into the cop-prostitute system. Because one of the cops says to her later, if you want to get in any trouble, next time you get busted, just come out of the station house, you'll be, your picture will be taken, you pay a $50 fine, and you'll be back on the street in half an hour. That's an extreme example, I mean, of behavior that is horrible, but because the person who performed it didn't think there was anything wrong with it. I mean, I, and I think generally speaking, that's true of all of us. We think what we do is okay. And somebody else may or may not agree with us. Well, so that, that scene in Law and Order with the strangula strangulation, obviously, you know, we, we watch it today. I post, uh, some of the recent things that have happened in society and it's horrifying. I guess one of the questions I have is when that, when you're documenting something like, and that happened when you're shooting a film and something like that happens or to go back to Teddy cut where they're force feeding the old man the, in the scene that you then intercut with his uh, footage after he'd passed away. And we see the ash might be dropping into the feeding tube and stuff like that. When you see that something bad is happening, where is the, I mean, if somebody was being actually killed, I suspect you would intervene. Uh, so where is the line between where you as a filmmaker have to stand back and where you would go, where you would intervene? Because, I mean, this comes up with war photographers and stuff as well. It's like, there's a starving child. Do you take their picture? Do you get them food? Here, you know, when you see bad things happening, how do you evaluate what to do in that moment? Well, I mean, I like to think, let's take the strangling scene. You know, it, it, it's self-righteous of me to think that if it had gone on much longer, I would have intervened. But it's easy to say that because I didn't have to do it. Uh, because he let her go. But I know that had I intervened, it would have been the end of the movie. Because, right. because the right. word would have gotten out that I was a wise guy and uh, I knew the police's business better than the police. So fortunately, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't put to the test. Uh, the one time I did intervene was in hospital. A man 
was being transferred onto a gurney, and that uh, and the person, the the nurse who was transferring him onto the gurney, lifted him up on the side in which he'd been badly injured. He'd cracked his ribs or something, and the guy started to scream. And I, I said to the to the nurse, uh, uh, I think you you know you're picking him up on the side where he's been bruised. But you know, fortunately, it's not something I've had to do very often. Now you've said that law and order also taught you something else, which is that you learned from that one, not to enter into a project with preconceived notions about what your subjects might do. Um, I guess this was happening right after the democratic convention in Chicago. And you've said, uh, that quote, I saw it as a chance to do in the pigs, but after about two days of riding around in police cars, I realized my little stereotype was far from the truth, at least in Kansas City, close quote. Now, obviously, there was some bad behavior on their part with the strangulation, but for the most part, I guess they were, they were like most people, just trying to, you know, do their best. And so is it, you know, really, when you go into a project, you don't, you just are there to see what happens? You have no expectations? Well, I mean, because I don't know anything about it. I mean, I'd never ridden, ridden around the police cars before I made Law and Order. And this mm-hmm. and I've been in police cars a fair amount, but you know, you when you when you spend a lot of time with the police, you realize the piggery is in a way restricted to the police, because you see what people do to each other that make it necessary to have police in the first place, and the, the police are capable of uh, generous and kind behavior as they are capable of cruel and and uh, terrible behavior. I mean, it was interesting that the strangle scene in 1968. Caused very, there was very little comment about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, people in some reviews, people commented it was a scene where the police strangle it. But I mean, think of that film. You know, I mean, we we see what effect that would have had today. I mean, with the George yeah. Floyd and all the other situations where police behavior has been caught on iPhones. But it, it's it's absolutely true. I mean, most of the subjects I don't know anything about before I start. I mean. Except, you know, certain. Cl- I mean, I'd never, I'd, I think I'd been in Boston City Hall once before I made City Hall. I'd never been in a welfare center. I'd spent exactly two hours in that welfare center before I started shooting. Well, so this is very interesting because essentially you've said that with the exception of Hospital, which was the film after Law and Order, with the exception of that, you'd never do any, you've never really done any research or uh or reading or whatever, really, before embarking on a project that you're going to make a film about and and that you basically just find the film while making it. But to me, that kind of begs the question, is everything and anything worth worthy of of a film or is it possible that along the way you find out that something isn't well, that interesting? Well, that, that's always possible. I mean, from my point of view, that hasn't yet been the case. But there are many mm-hmm. people who see some of my films that disagree with that opinion. <laughs> <laughs> right. So let's just note, you win an Emmy for Law & Order, you win two then for Hospital. Did that make it any easier to raise financing for your films? And, yeah. And, incident, and how do you do that? How did you do that? And has that changed over the years? Because again, these are unconventional, you know, people are used to their 60-minute or 90-minute films you're you're doing something i guess really starting with welfare which was two hours and 47 minutes that was your first really long film that's 1975 you're doing things that are 
not what other people were really doing. So how do you raise money for them? Well, I've had the support of public television almost from the beginning. Public television didn't exist when I did Today Got Follies or high school. But when I did Law and Order, the precursor of public television was something called the Public Broadcast Lab. And they gave me money uh, for Law and Order. And then the Corporation of Public Broadcasting gave me some money for hospital. And then they gave me some money for basic training. And then Fred Friendly, I don't know, do you know who Fred Friendly was? Sure, he was CBS, right? He, he was at, he was Edward Warmark's producer, and he was yeah. at CBS News. Uh, and, and he quit CBS because Paley, the president of CBS, ran a I Love Lucy episode rather than the Gulf of Tonkin hearings. And, and, and Fred went over to the Ford Foundation to guide the Ford Foundation in the, their participation in public television. And Fred liked Teddy Cut Follies and he liked the other films that I'd done. And he knew what, how difficult it was to get money. So he arranged for me to get two five-year grants from the Ford Foundation to make what amounted to one film a year for 10 years. So from 1971 to 1981, I just had to call up Channel 13 and say, Juvenile Court, Welfare Center, and I get half the money and I get the other half the money when I finish the film. And then since, since 1981, the Ford Foundation has continued to be, support me over the years. PBS has always given me a substantial amount of money for my films. ITVS, uh, uh, which is a branch of public television, has, has uh, in the last 10 years or so, well, more than the last 20 years, uh, participated in a lot of my films. So one or another of the branches of public television has always come in. In addition, I've had the, the support of the Ford Foundation, as I indicated, and then uh, the Pershing Square Foundation uh, has, has given me money. And there are several other smaller foundations over the years that have given me money. But it's, the basis of the financing is usually Ford and the, uh, some combination of the various branches of public television that I've mentioned, PBS, CPB, ITBS. You know, let's say someone's listening to this who says, I want to do what Frederick Wiseman does but I am worried, how does one make a living doing this when you're talking about the financing that you raise, that's to get the films made. But how then do you keep the lights on? These are not movies that get a release like a Marvel movie in, in thousands of theaters. These are not movies that play on a loop on television. So how does somebody, if it's not, I hope it's not a rude question to ask, but how does how does one make a living doing this? First five years from 19... 66 to the end of 1970, I had another job uh, and, uh, in a consulting company. And I took time off to shoot the films and I edited them on nights and weekends. And I started to support films at the end of 1970 because at that point I was uh, distributing the films myself. For Tilly Confalls in high school, I had a distributor, but I got the rights back because I got so screwed. I was so screwed by the distributor that I had nothing to lose. By and I set up my own distribution company. And in those days, in the early 70s, there was a big, big market in 16 mil distribution. Uh, I mean, there was at one point when there were 200 screenings of high school a month. 
wow. and so I was able to earn a living from the film rentals, from the 16 mil film rentals, a small salary that I sometimes was able to take out of the production. And also, you can, I started to get invited to talk in schools and colleges. And in America, they pay well to do that. You can make more money talking about movies than making them <laughs> in order to be able to talk about them. So I was able to make a living. And uh, since 1970, I've supported myself by trying to make approximately one movie a year and owning the, whatever money came in from the distribution was mine. I've had the help for 39 years of Karen Konachek, who has run the distribution company. Uh, and I make additional money by giving talks. So mm -hmm. those three sources, I'm able to have my independence and continue making the movies. Now, I believe that you've had opportunities that have come up where Hollywood proper, you know, the, the narrative um, traditional in the traditional sense uh, side of the business wanted you to come over. And I wonder if you can confirm or, or rebut a few things that I came across is it true that you wrote an early draft of the Thomas Crown Affair? Well, I worked. I didn't write the draft. I worked with Alan Trussman. Trussman came to me with the, the idea of a bank robbery. He wanted to write a movie script. And I invented the female character. Uh, and they worked together uh, on the script. Uh, and I, I, I mainly providing ideas and critiquing what he wrote. How about an early draft of The Stuntman? Uh, well, I was hired to write the screenplay and direct it, and I wrote a version of this. Uh, I wrote a screenplay, but uh, that was not the screenplay that was produced. And it was, uh, I've forgotten who directed it. It was directed by somebody else. And then the one that blew my mind the most, in a sense, I heard that you were approached about directing and turned down the uh, and almost laughingly turned down and, and asked to direct Rocky. That's right. I got a, uh, a letter from an agent sending me the script of Rocky asking me if I was interested. And I read it and uh, I said I wasn't interested. I mean, it, uh, I mean I'm, I'm being polite. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you don't have to be on this podcast. If you thought it was a P.O.S., you could say it. <laughs> well, I, I didn't think I could do it because I, didn't, I really didn't like the script. Uh, yeah. And it had no interest for me. So and I'm sure if I'd done it, I would have been a bad movie out of it. So have you had much of a, any desire kind of, you know, to, to do quote-unquote narrative movies more than you have, or are you happy to not? Well, yeah. I, I wanted it. There's a great Ann Tyler novel called Celestial Navigation which I wanted to do when I wrote a screenplay for that, and I got nowhere. So, and that was in the mid-'80s. Uh, so after that, I stopped even trying. I, I couldn't stand what I had to do, and I was very happy making the documentaries. I made one fiction film called The Last Letter, uh, which is based on a chapter of a good novel by a, a wonderful Russian writer by the name of Vasily Grossman. Uh, and I originally did that as a play, and then I... Uh, did a, I didn't shoot the play, but I did a movie based on the same text. And I'm now working with a friend of mine on a script for a fiction film, which I hope I'll shoot in France in, in the spring, wow. once the cold wow. subsides. 
So, and just to give a, provide a, a visual contrast, you know, you hear about a, uh, a Hollywood movie, there can be hundreds, thousands of people working on it. When you make a movie, how many people are on the set? Three. And so that's you doing sound, which I, I find... I, I, I direct and do the sound. I work with a cameraman. And the third person, when we shot on film, changed the mags. And now he he changes the cards and uh, carries whatever, you know, the extra lenses and does whatever else needs to be done. And uh, and you really, you know, have figured it out because I believe pre-78, your cinematographer was Bill Brain. Since 78, John Davey. Right. Those are long, long relationships. Right. Those are, And those are people you work with very closely, I assume, to the point where I guess it has to be almost nonverbal communication because you, you have to. You have to that, get right? along. And, and yeah. you know, and, and we watch rushes together every night and, and, uh, uh, we're constantly talking or, and during the shooting, I'm, I'm leading with the mic. And so we're, you know, it, we're constantly looking at each other and making judgments about what to shoot and how to shoot it. And often, I mean, wherever the, wherever the projects take you, right. If you have to do a film about, if you elect to do a film about Monrovia, Indiana, you're going to be in Monrovia, Indiana for what, like eight to 12 weeks. 10 weeks. Right. And yeah. so what do you, you, you pick up your life. I don't know. Does your, does your wife go with you? Do you, no, uh, no, no, no? no, no. I mean, because you know, it, it's, it's usually these shoots are seven days a week uh, and you're either shooting or looking at rushes anywhere from 12 to 16 hours a day at least. Uh, and, and you're staying in what, like a motel. You, you, motel. Yeah. Um, so it's not, it's not always, uh, Glamorous, but it's it's to you the. Well, it's fun. Yeah, sorry, no, it's, it's fun. No, yeah, there are no starlets in my scene, <laughs> uh, except for the one about the modeling uh, uh, yeah. agency. Right. <laughs> Interesting decision that you made. It wasn't until 1983 with the store that you began making your films in color. Why was that? Well, I made the store in color because I thought it was important to see the color of the goods. I mean, the, the, the nature of the product of the product was, was part of the story. So I, I did that. And then and similarly for the movies about the school for the deaf and blind, color is an aspect of the natural world. Uh, so then I just continued on in, in color, except for near death, which is in blind. Right. So you mentioned the films about the deaf and the blind. This is a, four film series that you shot at the Alabama, at the Alabama Institute for the Deaf and Blind that all came out or, or all were released between 86 and 87. When you went down to Alabama, though, to make the film, you planned to make one. Why did that end up becoming instead nine hours over four films that I believe because of the scale, you, you ended up really financing yourself? Uh, well, I mean, I, I, I had to finance the four for the money they gave me for one. And I, it became four films because uh, I perhaps should have known this in advance, but, you know, not everything, but many things were different. The nature of the classroom instruction, obviously, is different for deaf people and blind people. And I thought, I became aware of the fact that if I tried to do it all in one film, it would inevitably be superficial because that too much would have to be left out. I mean, there's one sequence in Deaf, which is the longest sequence in any of my films. 
it's an interview that the head of the school for the deaf has with a mother of a boy who's deaf and the boy. And it's, I mean, for me, it's absolutely mesmerizing because you find out everything about their relationship, even in the last 54 minutes. I think the, uh, the that series of films has some of your most, I don't know if haunting, I don't mean it in a negative connotation, but I mean, I, I don't think anyone who ever sees uh, Blind will forget about Jason, the kid who goes down to make a delivery to the, from the second floor to the first floor as a blind kid who says he can do it on his own. That was amazing. I know you've spoken about the fact that in the uh, adjustment and work film, just seeing that it takes a guy a, a whole morning to fold a washcloth, that will kind of stay with someone whenever you have to fold something or whatever. I mean, were those films, given the nature of the subjects, the youth of the subjects, what they were dealing with, was that a particularly emotional one for you to, I mean, you've dealt with a lot of heavy stuff, but I guess, do these films affect you personally while you're making them? Do you find that you're impacted more than you would expect to be sometimes? Well, sure. I mean, a lot of what I participate in and observe and listen to in making the films is, is very emotional and it does affect me. On the other hand, the fact that I'm working is, is somewhat of a defense because it's not that I'm just there observing. I'm there to, uh, I have a job to do, uh, which is to make, you know, to, to get the sequence, so to speak. Uh, so that, that provides a bit of a defense against some of the emotionally uh, telling uh, or demanding or upsetting things that you see and hear. I would imagine that Near Death, which was the first one, I think, after that four film series uh, where, where you focus in the intensive care unit at uh, Boston's Beth Israel Hospital, that's got to be a that's got to be a have been a tough one for you. And I, I just for anyone to be immersed in that. And I wonder. So, you know, this one, I believe, is your longest single film at at about six hours. And I, I think that a question people might like to know the answer to is how do you know when you're done shooting a film let set aside the editing where that's going to determine the final runtime but how do you know when you're there's no you know this is real life there's not always a clear ending delineating where you know when you are done so in your mind how do you know when you're done shooting and have you ever miscalculated where you haven't had enough well yeah i mean uh i mean it's like everything else in this kind of shooting. It's a subjective judgment. Maybe did I want to go home to my own bed? Maybe, I, <laughs> maybe, did I, maybe that I think I should be able to find a film in 150 hours of rushes. I, I do keep track of what I think the key, or my initial impression of as to what the key scenes are. So when I, I, you know, I have a little notebook in my pocket, so I do have an idea a rough idea that I that I have enough sequences out of which I can cut, cut a movie. Although I, when I decide to stop shooting, I have still have no idea what the themes or the structure will be. So you find that in the editing. Yeah. And really only toward the end of the editing. Mm-hmm. Cause when, when you're in the editing room, it sounds like, you know, almost like a, it's, it's really sculpting where you, you have sequences and then you figure out the, 
order or or whatever. You but you start out by just identifying interesting sequences, well, right? Yeah, I start off looking at all the rushes, and that takes me about six weeks, and then I. Uh, and I make notes while I'm watching about the various sequences. And then, I, you know, let's say I put it, I start, about 50% of the material interests me. So I start editing the sequences that I think might make it into the final film. And when I've edited in close to final form, those so-called candidate sequences, which takes me about six to eight months to do, then in a period of three or four days, I do the first assembly. And I can do the first assembly very quickly because at that point, I think I know the material very well. And that first assembly usually comes out to about three quarters of an hour, half to three quarters of an hour more than the final film. And then over the course of another six to eight weeks, I, I work on that assembly. Uh, and I particularly work on, I work on the structural, the order of the sequences, the internal rhythm within a sequence, and the external rhythm between the sequences, I mean, how the sequences are related. And I'm trying to find a, a, a dramatic structure for their presentation. And then when I think the movie's all done, I go back and look at all the rushes. In the case of City Hall, 104 hours. In the case of Ex Libris, 150. In the case of Berkeley, 250. I look at them all over again, sometimes at high speed. And I often find particularly transition shots that I'd forgotten about that were better than some of the ones I used. And occasionally I find a sequence that now that I know what the themes are, uh, helps support the, the, the themes. I have to ask, you know, High School 2 is in 1994. High School, the original was 68. Obviously, this is at a different school very different time period, but what was it that made you decide to sort of revisit a subject matter for the first time? And I think only, only time uh, overtly. Well, you know, I've done two ballet movies because the schools were so different. I mean, the only similarity between the two schools is that they both take place in buildings and that there are students and teachers. Northeast High had 4,000 students in a student-teacher ratio, one teacher to 30 students. Uh, Central Park West, where I made the second high school movie, had 250 students and a, a teacher-student ratio of one to three. Mm. So that the whole educational philosophy of the schools was different, and that's why uh, yeah. I made them. You mentioned ballet, and I see that between the film Ballet in 95, the sequel essentially to that one um boxing gym in 2010 at, at the large gym in austin texas there seems to be i know that you're yourself a i think a fan of theater and ballet and is there a particular interest in just the way you filmed those even with the boxing gym uh just bodies and movement and obviously they're they they feel a little bit different from something like public housing or others that you've done where it's, it's, I don't know. I, I, I guess, am I overanalyzing to think, you know, or I've seen other people write that Frederick Wiseman is fascinated with bodies and movement. Is no, that, yeah, that's true. That's true. Mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, and because it's dance or boxing, you know, it, it's filmed differently than walking. Yeah, <laughs> that is true. That is true. That is true. But, uh, but you, yourself, those are sort of, I mean, I, I've read you're a skier, you're a very phys physical 
movement. It's just interesting to see the way you film it. I, I don't know. I guess I, anyway. Okay. So city hall comes on the heels of at Berkeley in 2013, dealing with, again, a, a, a educational institution in Jackson Heights, 2015, dealing with immigrants and ex libris in 2017, dealing with the, with learning and the New York public library system. All of those films, I believe, were shot before Donald Trump was a serious candidate even for president. City Hall now comes at a time focusing on Boston City Hall uh, towards the end of the of the Trump era. And I just I guess I wonder if you can talk about the way that the times in which a film is seen can impact the way that people receive a film. I mean, because you didn't. I don't think that necessarily Ex Libris was made, for example, to to kind of counter Donald Trump in any way. It just but it does serve people see it and they see that as a response to it. City Hall, for instance. Now you've got this this Democratic mayor who's, you know, at the center of this film, who is everything that Donald Trump is not. And yet, I don't know, it sounds like you ended up shooting Boston only because other places were not willing to let you shoot. So I guess I just wonder for you, do you, are you amused when you see people reading deeper meaning into your, or political meaning into your films? I, I read some of the same meaning into it. I mean, yeah. I think yeah. Mayor Walsh uh, is a very good mayor, but I think one's reaction to the city hall movie would have been different if it was somewhat different in any case, if it had come out when Obama was president, president. Uh, because there wouldn't be this, such a stark contrast. I mean, Mayor Walsh, rep, Mayor rep, Walsh represents everything that is decent and necessary and important and useful about government. And Trump is just the reverse. He, mm-hmm. You know, he's uh, a psychopathic horror show, uh, <laughs> yeah. to put it mildly. Uh, right. So that, you know, Trump is, although he's mentioned once or twice in the film, he, everybody has Trump in mind because Trump wants everybody to have him in mind. And, and, uh, uh, and but also the terrible decisions he's made, the cruelty that have been a consequence of his decisions, like the children on the, uh, the Mexican border. Uh, you know, I, there's no need to make the list that everyone shares or that most people I know share. So there is in both City Hall and in Ex Libris an implicit, I mean, an unseen presence, which in no way minimizes the importance and the quality of uh, what Mayor Walsh does and what he represents. It's just that the value of what he represents is even, is, is emphasized because uh, Trump is uh, the, the, is so horrible, and Walsh is the anti-Trump. Absolutely, and I also wondered if part of the, you know, if if part of your drive to make a movie about any city hall, but particularly one that does seem to be functioning pretty well, like like this one, was that you know Trump has been systematically his administration systematically trying to dismantle our institutions. And I know this goes back to Reagan with the whole, um, the most terrifying words, the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. And all of that started it. But Trump has done 
things to institutions of government that I think were unimaginable even back then with Reagan, uh, in, in a sense, is is your, you know, you've always done things, always made films about institutions, but this is a, is this more of a defense of an institution or is that just the way it worked out? That's just the way it worked out. I mean, I didn't, I didn't, wasn't thinking about Trump at all when I had, you know, made the decision to do City Hall. I mean, that's just the way it came out. I mean, it came out the way as much because of Trump as any decision that I made. Uh, I, I knew, as I mentioned before, I knew nothing. I knew very little about Mayor Walsh, very little about the various services provided by Boston city government. And, and what I learned is what you see in the film. A funny thing that the New York Times had written, I think, uh, I believe in conjunction with this film, but they're all, all the articles are sort of blending is, quote, a meeting, formal or informal, routine or hastily gathered, tedious or contentious, amounts to a Wiseman's signature, like a shootout in a Tarantino movie or a dirty joke in a Judd Apatow comedy, close quote. What is it about, I mean, this has always been in, there are scenes of groups of people sitting down and talking about things that on the surface, you know, maybe if you said, hey, I'd like to invite you to a meeting about uh, a business looking to get the community's approval to come in and start a, a cannabis dispensary in in town. That doesn't, on the surface, sound to a lot of people riveting, and yet it is one of the most riveting scenes in this movie. So, is there something? What can? What is at the root of your interest in in meetings, which is which show up? throughout your films? Well, I mean, the real reason is that the places that I've chosen as subjects of the film, there are a lot of meetings. Uh, and, but it's not true of all the films. I mean, Boxing Gym, there are a couple of meetings in, uh, in the owner's office. Um, in in La Danse, the Paris Opera Ballet, there are a few meetings, but mainly there are rehearsals and performances. So, I mean... If meetings are important, are an important aspect of the place that's the subject of the film, well, then there have to be meetings in the film. You know, I, I, I think I've learned something about how to edit them down to a manageable size because meetings usually are an hour, an hour and a half, sometimes two hours. And in my films, there's sometimes eight or nine minutes, you know, with a couple of exceptions. And... That eight or nine minutes is assembled from all over the lot of the hour and a half meeting. Two minutes here, 20 seconds here, 30 seconds there. And through the use of reaction shots or cutaways, edited to appear as if it took place the way you're watching it, even though it didn't. Uh, and that's another example of the fictional aspect of this kind of filmmaking. Part of my job is to make, you know, what I've selected to include in the film interesting. Because, I, you know, I'm very aware of the fact that I'm making a movie. Do you have a favorite moment in City Hall yourself? A moment that you're, or when it happened, you were just so thrilled you were capturing it? Is there something that stands well, out to you I, as you think you know, that? I never, you know, I, I like the marijuana meeting uh, where, where some city officials are meeting with some residents about uh, setting up a marijuana store in a poor neighborhood. Uh, but, I mean, I, I, I you know, strangely enough, I tend to like, <laughs> All right. So with the last minute, if it's OK, I just want to the first thing that comes to your mind about a few 
uh, random things. If someone could only see one Frederick Wiseman movie or there was a college course, they only were able to teach one film per important filmmaker, which would you want them to show? Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, it's asking me to choose among my children. <laughs> uh, uh, I'd probably say welfare. Okay. And any particular reason? Well, I think it's very dramatic and it's sad and it's funny. Who is the greatest living documentary filmmaker not named Frederick Wiseman? Oh, I, I don't get to see many movies. I, I, and I, I don't want to get involved in I mean, they, it gets me involved in the politics of filmmaking. So I, I, I decline to answer. Can I get you out of it a little bit by saying, I believe there's one retired filmmaker who is your senior, who I believe you particularly. Oh, I, I, I'm very fond of Marcel Ovel's movies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Hotel Terminus and, and uh, So in the Pity are two, yeah. two of the greatest movies. You have said that you think of your films as, quote, all one long movie, close quote. What do you mean by that? Well, I'm doing uh, the movies as, as a group uh, showing many aspects of contemporary life. By the time I reach the ultimate healing, I'll have made a group of movies that are thematically related, which, you know, I, I, hope, they'll, I hope they succeed as dramatic narratives, but they also are records of the way we lived and where we dressed and where we thought and where we spoke and where we lived. And finally, uh, I wonder if you can just talk about how the pandemic has impacted your life and work and just what your plans are moving forward, what keeps you uh, going here. I would guess that this is the first time, based on your amazing output, that you're probably not in the middle of making one film or another. So I just, just what is this moment like for you and what is, what does the future look like? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping, uh, I mean, I'm bored out of my mind and I'm also scared uh, because I'm, I'm in the age group that the, vi that the virus likes, you know, I'm not ready to die. I'm not ready to fold up my tent. So I'm, I'm scared and I'm doing what I can to protect myself. And I'm hoping that in a couple of months I'll be able to get the vaccine. You're in, you're in Paris at the moment? Yeah, right. And uh, once it becomes possible for you to, you know, if you get the vaccine or whatever causes it to, you know, you, you want to keep making films forever? Well, I'm hoping I'll be able to make this fiction film in the spring. And then mm -hmm. after that, you know, there are a number of, you know, uh, I want to make up for lost time. There are a number of documentaries that I want to shoot. Well, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time to do this. I so admire your films and filmmaking, and uh, I just really thank you for doing well, it. Thank you. It's, it's great. I enjoyed the conversation. It's nice of you to have me on. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.